Easter season, our readings every week include a reading from Revelation. And so we're doing a little series on how Revelation is not merely something that predicts the future, but something that reveals to us a better way of living today. And so Mike got us started last week helping us see that, that um, faith is not opposed to doubt. Uh, faith in the New Testament is actually opposed to sight. Uh, if you were to look carefully, um, faith is opposed to sight. Everybody, including Peter and these fishermen, <laughs> have confusion and doubt. The New Testament word faith never meant to assume all complete clarity uh, that leads one to have complete certainty and to never be a bit confused or doubting about anything. And then our reading this morning alerts us to, I think, two things about worship and how, how these biblical scenes in Revelation reveal to us a better way. And that is that the worship in our reading in Revelation this morning shows us the subject Who's the subject of our worship and what's its nature? And its nature, if you look at your reading in your bulletin, you know, I've been you know, reading this my whole life and it still strikes me as a little troubling. Like, doesn't it just sort of assault your senses in a kind of funny way? It kind of confronts our common sense and our modern scientific worldview as it's revealing these hidden realities. See, it's these hidden but more sure, more real realities. Like, are you catching this? These hidden realities are actually more sure and more real, but they almost feel like they assault our common senses. And then of course, the subject of worship and the book of John says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave. And our reading this morning kind of broke into the scene in heaven. And if we were to be able to look at the first part of Revelation chapter five, you can see that the reason Jesus is being so worshiped here is that John can see that the whole kind of cosmic future, the whole universe is up for grabs. And he looks around and there's no one who's found worthy to to take human history and shepherd it to its God ordained conclusion. And then he looks and he sees a lamb. And this lamb is found worthy to take the scroll, which is essentially uh, God's ordained uh, plan for human history. And, and the son, this lamb, is able to take it. And this is the person who is trusted with human history, including Peter and his doubts. And look at me here. You and your doubts, and you and your sins, and you and your failings, and you and your confusions. Jesus is the one who's not only the subject of worship and the main subject of all human history, but he's the one not only with whom we have to do, but he's the one that we can come to rely on even when like Simon Peter, we're crushed and numb. So when Peter says, I'm going fishing, he's really just saying something like, I need some time and some emotional space here. I just need to go back to what I knew, what was familiar. Maybe some old routines might provide me some comfort and some relief from this emotional overload I'm feeling. But you can see the story in your bulletin. The fishing didn't work. Like he goes back to what he was literally expert at. And you know, they had to be sitting there going all all night going, what the heck is going on here? We've done this a million times. This is where the fish are. This is how you fish. We've never not caught fish here. 
And so they go through the whole night and the sun comes up and on the shore they see this shadowy figure and they hear this voice saying, throw your nets on the other side. They do, they catch this great, you know, catch of fish that Tom just read to us about. And then Jesus says to them, essentially, come have breakfast. Now, I want you to just try to feel this. I want to see if you can put these two readings together in your imagination. The Jesus we just read about in Revelation essentially says to them, I want to have breakfast with you. I mean, can you hear the kindness can you hear this, just the basic human hospitality? This one who's the risen creator and Lord of the whole universe offers them this simple, loving hospitality. And it's not for no reason that we come to this table every week. Because the risen creator, superintending Lord of the universe still wants to dine with you. No matter your doubts, as Mike taught us, no matter what you did this week or last month or when you were a teenager, somehow this kind of relationship with Jesus where we just say yes to his loving hospitality and generosity, it does something to us as humans. Well, this whole kind of tension we read, read between Jesus and Peter in the gospel reading alerts us that Peter has unfinished business that's gonna be fixed, you know, in this meal and in this dialogue. And so this tense dialogue that unfolds, I don't know about you, but to me it's almost unbearable to listen in on. It's almost like we shouldn't be listening in on this. I mean, this is really intense stuff. Like, you know, Peter, are you sure you really love me. And of course, the three questions mirror the three denials. And what's intended to happen here, actually, what Jesus is actually doing something here, he's actually trying to bring to Peter's memory the fire that he denied him in front of. Now you got this fire on the beach that's cooking fish. And so Peter's night of agony, of confusion and denial, of huge doubts, begins to flood into his mind. And Jesus' message to him is odd in that he says, gosh, Peter, I wish I could have trusted you. What a bummer. I was kind of counting on you to, you know, help me lead this new church here. What a drag. You know, I guess I'll have to get John now or, you know, maybe Matthias or somebody, you know, will be able to pull this off. But instead, Jesus' message to him is, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I'm sure you've read that and thought, well, like, what is up with that? You know, and sometimes we get all into the Greek words about love and we get into all the Greek words about, you know, tend and feed and all that. And I think that kind of is a adventure in missing the point. <laughs> I think the point here is actually very simple. It's Peter, I want you to carry on what I've been doing. What you saw me doing, reconstituting the people of God, feeding these sheep, and how you saw that the sheep and goats are no longer, you know, like Israel and, and uh, the Gentiles, how I'm making this one new people and, and feeding them on this new reality. That's all that's really being said here. Is Peter, I know what you did. I saw it, I get it. I'm gonna help you get it. And then I want you to just carry on. Because that does not define you, Peter. Your denials don't define you. They are not your story. 
I mean, everything's digital now. It's sort of such a drag. Because back in the day when we had like actual, you know, uh, movie strips, you know, remember when you used to be able to hear the projector clicking behind you when you went to the movies, you know? Well, when those, when those film strips would, you know, they each had little frames in them. And Jesus is simply saying, Peter, that frame that contains your denials is not the movie of your life. I see something different. There's a whole movie here. You're not defined by that frame. Jesus is not denying that that frame happened. He's not, he's not leading Peter, Peter into some sort of psychological or emotional denial. He's leading him into a facing it that reinterprets it according to this whole movie, not just the one frame. And so Peter, seeing the magnanimity of this, of course, his response is worship. His response is to love God. And this is how the worship we see in the Revelation text reveals to us a better way of doing life. For it teaches us that worship is central to our both our identity and our mission. That worship actually makes us a people. It shapes us in response to God. And it's such a bummer to me as a pastor. Been going on my whole life. That we just judge this. Was it any good? Or is it the right instruments? Well, God, I wish it was a little more like jazz. Or how come it's not more like rock and roll? And we just go out of church week after week after week judging this rather than realizing that we don't sing for no reason. We sing because it constitutes us as a people. We sing these songs because it reminds us that this is my story. Not how I come in tonight. This is a spiritual practice. This is a spiritual practice every bit as much as prayer or silence or solitude. The church has been singing since before there was a church. Anybody got a Bible with them? I do. Here's my, here's my Bible. I got about 147 translations on this. Do you know what Jesus' songbook was? The Psalms. People have been singing their story since before there was a church or a freaking contemporary worship band. This is not about how cool's the music. It's a spiritual practice that reminds us that, yeah, this is who I am really. I'm not defined by what happens outside of here in government and economics and that sort of thing. What I'm defined by is this story that transcends all of human story and is being superintended by this one that, that uh, Revelation teaches us to worship. So Christian worship is seen in Revelation. It helps us answer the question, who's the Lord of the world? And who's worthy of our worship? See, because Christian worship specifically names Jesus as the one who's worthy. And in that specification, when we are really specific about who it is that we worship, the intention of that is to dethrone competing claims on our loyalty. Well, what if that's what's happening here? What if this isn't just about someone missed a chord? What if what's really happening is that it's dethroning everything else that pulls on our emotions? What if it's meant to diss that which drags us into, you know, being disobedient to God and his story? Well, then it begins to take on, obviously, a whole different character. And that's the character that we see in these revelation passages that are so kind of disjointing. I mean, at least to me, they always throw me off a little bit. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You know, I spent my whole early life 
from about 19 to I forget when I stopped, but most of my early life was spent really as kind of a young evangelist. And I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of times I asked people to make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. And that's not a bad thing and I don't mean to put it down. But kind of the law of unintended consequences meant that often something did happen that was less than good. Because while making people our personal savior was actually a necessary historical and contextual corrective, and all I mean to say by that is when Billy Graham came on the scene post-World War II up to, you know, the Jesus movement and what I was doing in the 70s, there was a sense in which Americans were Christian. And essentially what Billy was saying is, no, that actually doesn't fly. You have to make this personal. So I, I get that it was a necessary corrective, but often it came with the cost, us losing the enormous scope of Jesus's role, the extent of his glory, and the magnificence that is given him in these worship passages, in, his worship passages in Revelation. Because when we read these passages in Revelation as worship is a spiritual practice, here's what happens. It pulls us into a way of life and worship and of discipleship to this stunning person, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to take the scrolls and to be entrusted with all of human history and to let human history with all of its ups and downs and uglinesses and confusions actually come to its divinely appointed end. I mean, I gotta tell you, that's about a lot more than you. <laughs> Told you, I love that bumper sticker. Only one six billionth is about you right? And, and these passages in Revelation teaches us that though, yes, this is a very personal thing. Imagine eating, eating, um, eating breakfast on the beach with Jesus, who's, who's reinterpreting your life and all of your failures and showing you your future. That's an intensely personal thing. I've already said so personal, it almost feels like, like TMI, you know, like, I don't want to hear this conversation, but it's not merely that. In other words, Jesus is reconstituting and recommissioning Peter in this whole big story. So indeed, as your passage says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then these four living creatures say, amen, that's right. And then all the elders fall down and they worship. Well, here's what I'd like you to do this morning. Just our last couple minutes here. I want you to hold before your mind that awesome scene in Revelation. Okay, can you just try to, best you can, just hold that, that picture before your mind. And now, I want you to get in that boat with Jesus and his friends as they were fishing. You might even just want to close your eyes here and try to picture this. You get in that boat. It's early morning daybreak. You're with your friends, just trying to medicate the pain and confusion and doubt of the last few weeks. And then I, I wanna ask you to do what I've been doing the last few days as I've thought about this passage. Okay, here we go. What projects or worries or assignments have you been working hard on and getting nowhere? And then I want you to listen for the voice of Jesus, maybe barely visible on the beach, maybe barely audible, this faint voice coming from the shore, but I want you to listen to it. And then just do whatever he tells you to do. 
For in Easter, we say he's alive, that he's still present on the earth, still capable of teaching us and guiding those who intend to follow him, like Peter, who in the charcoal fire has the memory of that other charcoal fire of denial, of, and then of this horrible crucifixion and the resurrection, and how in this second fire that's all redeemed. For this is part of what it means when the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins. It's not just taking away the penalty, paying the price. It's freedom from sin and healing of its effects on our lives. So Jesus goes beyond clearing Peter's records in the books of heaven. He goes to where the disabling pain is to the scabs on Peter's memory and his imagination. And he loves him by inviting him back to his vocation to help Jesus shepherd and feed and look after God's precious lambs. And here Jesus is doing something stunning because Jesus is the good shepherd. Peter, you know, is the fallen, screwed up disciple. And the good shepherd says to that disciple, I'm gonna share my own work with you. So over this fallen, doubting, confused man, and it could have been a woman, Jesus is speaking words of trust and confidence, very much like that which he heard from his father as he rose from the waters in the Jordan. And this is key to our Christian worship and work, love for Jesus, respect for him, confidence and trust in him as the one who really can take the scroll which includes not just the big cosmos, but our little life. And so even though we've let him down a million times, he wants to help us find that love, to heal us of our past failures and recommission us, giving us a chance to express our love for him. So now maybe uh, let me have your attention again, your eyes. So not with fish and bread, but this morning with wine and bread, Jesus invites you to the table at which he is host, offering you this morning healing and a fresh sending. Way, way, way more powerful than Peter's denials and your sins is God's grace as seen in Jesus on the beach and hosting this table. So what about you? Maybe something this week has scarred you. Maybe you still wrestle with memories from your teenage years. Maybe an ugly divorce when you were in your 20s. Maybe a decision you made that you feel like wrecked your career at work. Well, this Easter season, as we place ourselves before these texts in Revelation, they invite us to bring those things into this more real reality that Jesus represents on the beach and as the host at this table to let him heal you. And I just wanna say one last thing. This is why every week we give you an opportunity for prayer. We don't do it because we're token charismatics. We don't do it because a few of us in the church happen to have a vineyard background. We are broken people. And we need time for people to just lay their hands on us and simply pray for us, times for us to say, yeah, this thing is going on with me. And so if this morning you're here and you, you find yourself 
something like that Peter thing going on you or any moment, any week in our future, just don't ever be ashamed of that. And it doesn't have to be me or Pablo or Beth or Michael. Lots of us can just find a friend to just say, would you pray for me? Because I believe in this, Jesus will meet me. Amen? Amen.